Good evening, and welcome to the July 2023 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight, we are joined by one of my colleagues at KRCB Radio, who I met this last spring at the inaugural KRCB Food and Wine Awards program. Clark Wolf is a nationally known expert on the Sonoma County and national food and restaurant scene. He's also a gay man who lived through a time when the restaurant and food industry kept its culinary artists deep in the closet. Clark has been witness to the incredible fine food movement hanging out with the likes of Alice Waters and James Beard. Tonight he shares his personal story and passion for our amazing local food scene. It's all coming up next right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. I love to change the world. This is Greg Morelli with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of July 23rd, 2023. House Republicans have voted 219 to 210 to pass an annual military spending budget loaded with numerous culture war amendments, including one that would defund gender-affirming care for transgender military and their families. Democrats have criticized Republicans for using the $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act to excite their right-wing base of voters before an election year. However, the Republican amendments aren't likely to survive the Democratic Senate and may leave the military less prepared to respond to threats, so say Democrats. This particular amendment is one that would deny trans-related health care coverage for any hormone replacement therapies and gender-affirming surgeries. The amendment blocks TRICARE. That's the health care program for active-duty military personnel, their families, and the National Guard. From paying for such care, even though it's a standard of care for transgender people, with all major medical organizations, including the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, and the Endocrine Society, supporting such treatments. Another amendment would block the Defense Department educational arm from purchasing any books that have, quote, pornographic materials or, quote, espouse radical gender ideology. And yet another amendment would deny time off and funding to service members seeking abortions in other states. Other amendments would eliminate all Department of Defense offices and positions related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, prevent military academies from using affirmative action policies to promote racial diversity, and prevent the Department of Defense schools from teaching that the U.S. and its founding documents are racist. Among those defending these amendments include Representative Chip Roy from Texas. He said, quote, The American people I've talked to back home don't want a weak military. They don't want a woke military. They don't want rainbow propaganda on bases, and they don't want to pay for troops, quote, sex changes. And in Michigan, the owner of a hair salon is now refusing to serve some members of the LGBTQ plus community, flouting a state law banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in the wake of the Supreme Court's recent decision in 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis. In a recent Facebook post, Christine Geiger, she's the owner of Studio 8 Hair Lab in Traverse City, Michigan, wrote, quote, If a human identifies as anything other than man or woman, please seek services at a local pet groomer. You're not welcome at this salon, period, end quote. Geiger added that she and her staff would refer to customers who request to be addressed by a particular pronoun as, quote, hey you, regardless of what Michigan's House Bill 4744 states. The legislation signed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer in March added the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity to Michigan's 1976 Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, 
which bans discrimination in housing, employment, and public accommodation within businesses, government buildings, and educational facilities on the basis of religion, race, color, national origin, age, sex, height, weight, familial status, and marital status. Geiger's post follows the recent Supreme Court ruling that says that certain business owners have the right under the First Amendment's free speech protections to deny service on the basis of their personal beliefs. The court ruled in favor of a Christian web designer in Colorado who argued that the state's LGBTQ inclusive anti-discrimination law violated her free speech rights by potentially forcing her to create wedding websites for hypothetical same-sex couples. And here in California in 2024, 16 years after a slim majority of Golden State residents adopted a ballot measure banning same-sex marriage, California voters will now have a chance to rescind the homophobic decision. After the state assembly voted during Pride Month to place the Prop 8 repeal measure, Assembly Constitutional Amendment 5, before voters, state senators followed suit. Legislators in the chamber voted unanimously, 31 to 0, with bipartisan support in favor of Assembly Constitutional Amendment 5. Gay Assemblymember Evan Lowe, who was the lead author of the measure, said, quote, With bipartisan support, we are now one step closer to ensuring marriage equality as a fundamental right in California. And the bill's co-author, gay Senator Scott Weiner, said, quote, Next fall, Californians will reject the assault on LGBTQ rights that bigoted ideological justices have launched from the Supreme Court. The bipartisan support for this amendment shows once again that inclusion remains a core value across ideological lines in our state. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if you're a longtime listener, you know one of my passions is fine dining and great food. And this summer, I was fortunate enough to visit Paris for the first time. And I have to say, while the restaurant and food scene was pretty incredible, it's really no better than what we have right here in the Bay Area. And I came home with a real appreciation for all of our locally grown produce and fine dining opportunities that really are abundant here. My guest tonight has been witness to the emergence of this incredible food scene. Clark Wolf brought arugula to California in 1980 to sell at his legendary Oakville Grocery in San Francisco, which he ran until he moved to New York in 1982. Since then, he's become America's leading food and restaurant consultant with projects in Las Vegas, New York, Australia, Seaside, Florida, just to name a few. Since 1999, Wolf's lived at least part-time in a 100-year-old logger's cabin here in Sonoma County. The rest of the time, he lives in Manhattan and on the road for his clients. In addition to all of his writing and consulting, he's won many awards, including being inducted to the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America. Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Fantastic to have you on. It was so great to meet you at that amazing KRCB event. Uh, But before we get talking about that, uh, for our listeners who may not know you, tell us about yourself and what brought you to Sonoma County. Well, I was coming to Sonoma County from when I was about four months old. I was born in Southern California, born at Queen of Angels Hospital in Hollywood, (laughs) California, um, to immigrant parents. We grew up in the valley when it was filled with lemon groves and orange groves. Mm. And from a very early age, the whole family, aunts and uncles and cousins and people who we thought were cousins who turned out to just be friends, uh, all went up and down the coast or up up and down California. Mm -hmm. I I never really understood why my parents never wanted to leave California until I learned more about the fact that my father was born on the way out of Ukraine in 1921, and my mother was born in Moldova and came at the age of 12. So there was some trauma there, and Mm -hmm. California was the promised land. So 
every year, if dad was doing okay, we had a week vacation. If dad was doing a little bit better, we had a two-week vacation. And we went to Yosemite, and we went to uh, Sequoia, and we went to Carmel, and we went to San Francisco, where my mother wore gloves and a hat, and we wore little tiny blazers. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and Santa Barbara and all those things, and uh, mostly stayed in something affectionately called a Motel 6. I mean, I still have vivid memories of um, the sound of the plumbing uh, in a cheap oh, motel, yeah. Yeah. singing, yeah, right, yeah. right. So, but but at Yosemite, we stayed in canvas cabins with wooden floors, and and now it's called glamping, you know, <laughs> the full <laughs> circle. So, it turns out my mother's father, no, my mother's mother's family, were landed Jews, which was not that common in um, kind of Eastern Europe, <laughs> closer to the West, and in, in Moldova near R Romania, <clears throat> and had a, a lumber company. So. The idea that after all these years, I ended up in the Redwoods is kind of genetic. And, and and her father's family had a peasant grocery and a little inn. So the fact that I got involved in food and hospitality, again, seems to be in uh, in my makeup. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Southern California. I went to college. Um, I started at, San Francisco, uh, at uh, Northridge College. My father used to call it Northridge College. It drove me crazy. Uh, because it was, I don't know, San Fernando Valley State College. Mm -hmm. And then they renamed it Northridge State University. And mm -hmm. that was right again. And I did that for two years. And then I moved up to San Francisco at the age of about 20 in 1972 with blue-black hair to my waist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I was, uh, see, the thing is, my mother was a concert pianist, a uh, very talented person. She raised roses. We had... Um, an apricot tree, a tangerine tree, Meyer lemons, lilacs, all these wonderful things. But she was a post-war cook. She wanted things to be in a bag from the freezer and convenient. And mm -hmm. so she was a pretty terrible cook. <laughs> so <laughs> when I got to college and I was on a very tight budget, uh, I lived on craft dinner, you know, 19 cents a box. And if things were going well, maybe an extra stick of butter and an extra piece of cheddar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was it, it was in San Francisco when I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle and it said in it, buy a Dungeness crab and have it freshly steamed or boiled where you are and take it home and put it on this newspaper and get a, a wooden mallet or a hammer or something soft uh, to cover it with and get a, a, a lemon and a baguette from Boudin and some mayonnaise mm. and a bottle of Wendy Brothers Chenin Blanc and have a feast. And I did it. And it was life changing. I thought this is this is the best thing ever. So I, I ended up, among other things, finishing up school and um, going for a job at the railroad. A friend of mine was the head steward to the president of the Southern Pacific. And he said, you should work on the railroad. And I didn't realize that working on the railroad for him was not going to be what I was going to get to have. So I worked <clears throat> on the Silver Zephyr mm -hmm. between Oakland and Chicago. I went 250,000 miles. It was a two and a half days there, 26 hour layover, two and a half days back. And sometimes we would double and triple out, which meant you go home, you wash your face and you go back to the train. Hmm. Yeah. And I was the really? only white kid working much of the time. And we had the, the food we served was pretty terrible. We served 600 people in 48 seats in under two hours at 90 miles an hour. And it was not great food, but the food that the crew got from these wonderful cooks was again life changing for me. These uh, 
old African-American cooks from different parts of the country, but all of whom were on the train, uh, they would t talk about, I would ask about it. And uh, they, they, I began to be trusted when I stuck around for a while. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. Meanwhile, as a young gay man, when I got to Chicago, I wanted to go to gay clubs. It was the, it was the seventies. So I would go to these incredible mafia owned gay oh, yeah, dance clubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd go to a little alley somewhere and there'd be this guy with a thick neck who'd say, you know where you're going, little fella. And I would go in and there would be a stainless steel floor and farm boys dancing in very little clothing on top of pedestals. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was it was. But but of course, then in Chicago, this was my first real big city after San Francisco. So I went and bought Marshall Fields uh, Frango Mints and I went to the pump room. I wanted to eat and be in places that were special. Mm hmm. Well, Chicago is such a food mecca still. I mean, goodness, a lot of great it, stuff well, it, there. It, 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 it was, it, you know, when I finally got to New York, so I was in San Francisco for 10 years. And when I was in San Francisco, uh, I, I saw a sign in the window uh, because my boyfriend really needed a job. And uh, he came back and said, this is a job for you. And it was to open and run and manage a little cheese and wine shop at the base of Nob Hill. Hmm. And yeah, that was in 1976. And uh, about a year or so later, the door darkened. I opened it up and the, the, the company that owned it went chapter 11, the second week of my employment. So I learned how to dance and display and make business out of thin air. Hmm. I, you know, I learned, I learned, I, it was, it was a, uh, it was a storefront MBA. You know what I mean? Right. Sometimes was, the best I, way to learn. Oh, very often. Uh, and, and, you know, I've talked to a number of MBAs who are only graduates of business schools. They're not business people mm -hmm. because they haven't, they haven't been up all night worrying about how to pay the bills. Right. Right. So I got this experience and it was a wonderful experience and I was part of the community. I could see that food and a shop like this could have an impact on the community, on people's lives. And I loved it. Um, and then one day the door darkened and there in the door stood uh, James Beard, the famous author and chef. Hmm. He came in wearing a floor to sky black leather trench coat <laughs> and jeans and a striped Venetian tea shirt and said, my doctor says I shouldn't even walk into a store like this. Do you have any Appenzeller or Morbier? And we, you know, and we got to be uh, chatty and he was living about half the year at the Stanford court up at the top of the hill. Mm -hmm. So he would trundle down. And then about a year later, I was dating one of his assistants, John Carroll. And John said, Mr. Beard remembers you and he would like you to come to dinner with us at the Stanford court. Don't feel insulted if at 9.15 or 10, he says, I'm tired, go home. And I got there and he gave me advice about what to order and how to order it. And then he said, at 1.15 a.m. when John was in the men's room, come by tomorrow and we'll have a good gossip. And we got to be friends. That was the night that I had my first ever double Glenlivet neat. <laughs> so when I came to New York, after that, I... I was hired to be the cheese guy and then the manager of the Oakville Grocery. I redid the Oakville Grocery in the Napa Valley, re-merchandised it, made it look uh, prettier and more abundant, and it, it made more sense for people to shop because I'd had to learn how to do that in my little shop. And then I was uh, uh, given the task of going to New York, seeing all the big stores, and coming back to San Francisco to merchandise the Oakville Grocery that opened in 1980, uh, owned by Joseph Phelps, the winemaker. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was told, you have... Uh, nine days to do this, and then the international press will be arriving. It's <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. And and when when Cyril Magnin came in and said, 
who did this? This looks great. I was, you know, pretty happy. Yeah. Um, so I ended up running that for two and a half years. And then um, I was I was visited by a woman called Marion Burroughs. She was a reporter for the New York Times. She came into the Oakville Grocery in 1982, 81, 81, November of that year, to, to look into this thing that she called California cuisine. Mm. Can you imagine? Mm. That was a while mm -hmm. ago. It was. Yeah. So I, I uh, she she came in on it. I said, come on Saturday at noon and I'll be ready from cleaning up from the day before. I mean, come on Sunday at noon. I'll clean up from Saturday. So, of course, she came at 11 and I put her up in my desk and I said, here, you sit here. Here's a croissant and here's a cappuccino. Leave me alone for an hour. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I had the, the guts to tell this New York Times reporter to sit down. But I did. And interestingly, she and I have been lifelong friends. But oh, well. anyway, she she came down and, and we, we uh, went through the whole store. And um, the, 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 the couple of months later, she wrote this whole story in The New York Times and mentioned things that we had talked about and people we had talked about, but never mentioned the Oakville Grocery, never mentioned me. And I thought, OK, all right. So then. A little while later, I was sent to New York to go to Bloomingdale's because Bloomingdale's, I don't know if you know this, Greg, they they still do these international festivals where it'll be a French festival or an Italy festival <laughs> and everything in the store, the fashion, the food, everything will be from that country. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's very cool. So I was going there to sell the Oakville grocery section of the California section of the new California promotion. And I get there. And they say, I'm sorry, we can't see you. Amelda Marcus is coming from the Philippines to inaugurate our Philippine promotion. And there's going to be demonstrations in the street. And so it's not safe for you to come. So I thought, OK, once again, New York smacks me. And then the next morning, the second half of Marion Burroughs' article in The New York Times came out. And we were 30 percent of it. And they called me and got me in. So there I was visiting New York. And I had my merchandising VP and my security team. And over there was Imelda Marcos with her puffy sleeves and her fancy shoes and her security team and her merchandising VP. And that was my introduction to food in New York. Wow. That was quite an introduction. I mean, from, you know, Dungeness Crab on newspaper to <laughs> Bloomingdale's in New York. That's quite a journey. <laughs> it was. And, and so I came back to California and, uh, uh, Barbara Kafka, who was then the food editor of Vogue, uh, was also doing some consulting for Joe Phelps. So she couldn't call me herself. So if you can imagine, James Beard called me and said, Barbara would love you to come and help her do an American food store. And she can't call because she works for Joe. It would be a conflict. But if you come to New York, I'll be happy to, you know, give you a boost, and introduce you to people. I'll even feed you once in a while. <laughs> and I was like, okie dokie. <laughs> So I packed up and, and moved to New York in 1982. Wow. Wow. After, after being in New York for a number of years, and actually all told and up until the pandemic, I had a place in New York uh, somewhere in Manhattan for 38 years. But in 1999, I was writing a book about American artisan cheeses because in that period of time, I helped start the American Cheese Society. And I always loved cheeses. It's where I started. So I wrote, wrote a book for Simon & Schuster called American Cheeses. And uh, I was traveling around um, here in California. And my business partner, then my personal partner as well, we're still family and we still work together. Uh, Scott Mitchell, who was taking the photographs and I had been visiting cheesemakers and I wanted to take him to lunch at the French Laundry to show him what this was all about, mm -hmm, you know, how, mm -hmm. right. So, but of course we were talking to 
farmers and cheesemakers, and we were late. And so Thomas Keller said, uh, you know, I don't have enough time to feed you for four and a half hours. Here's a glass of champagne, go away, and we'll try this another time. So I said to Scott, hey, you want to go over the hill to Sonoma County to see where I used to come in summers in the 70s and run around in the redwoods and in the woods by the Russian River and be crazy? <laughs> and he said, sure. So we, we came over and took a look. And a month later, we um, took a vacation here, rented a place in Monterio for 12 days. And on the second day, went to a local gym, ran into a woman who had worked at the Zuni Cafe, started chatting. She told us we were uh, that she had um, moved into real estate. And if we ever wanted to see a place, and two hours later, we had bought the cabin I'm living in today. I just, we just fell in love with it. We went to the farmer's markets. The food was, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. we, worth weeping over. It was life-changing. It was like being in France or Italy 85 years ago where, you know, it was so true. And I just, I, I could breathe here. And so for all those years since 99 to the pandemic, I've constantly been going back and forth and back and forth as I've traveled around the country. But Sonoma County felt like home from when I was a kid, from when I came in the 70s, and from the first day that we moved here. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. I think there's a lot of folks that are migrating up here, and we'll give some advice to those newcomers. You're certainly not a newcomer anymore, but we'll talk more about that a little bit later. So it, with all of your experience with food, uh, what are your favorites and what are your least favorites? Well, first of all, um, I'm a very seasonal person. Again, it's why I live here. And I'm not a list person. You know what I mean? I, I love many things and there's some things that I like, but I can't eat them because they don't agree with me. I'm mildly allergic to chocolate, definitely allergic to scallops. And I kind of like almost everything else. Uh, I've tried, you know, many, many things. I love fresh fruits and vegetables and most often raw. Um, mm. I, I've always eaten meat that was in small quantities from a really good uh, farmer and uh, the, the, the more local and grass-fed the better. I just have always loved that. I, I grew up on Southern California steak, which was grass-fed. It was range-fed and, and dry-aged the way New York likes it and the way California likes it, but not a lot of it. So, I mean, for me, a really great baked potato with nothing, with a little bit of kosher salt, mm -hmm. is, is especially if I get it from a farmer's market where uh, the farmer pulled it out of, the ground, out of the ground in a timely fashion and it hasn't sat in warehouses and in trucks and whatnot. So, I mean, I love whatever is in season. I'm in the middle of uh, serious asparagus and then I'll let them go. I eat raspberries, I mean, strawberries actually, um, from pretty much from Mother's Day until uh, close to Thanksgiving from Middleton Farm because they're the best strawberries I've ever had in my life. I eat Dry Creek white peaches in all the varieties mm -hmm. she grows. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I, and and, I've worked with restaurants all over the country and many places in other parts of the world. No chef, as many uh, uh, have done wonderful things, no chef has ever made food as brilliant as a single ripe peach. Sorry, guys. So, you know, that that's what it is. My, my favorites are good things, usually simply done because it's much harder to do good, simple food. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the most important lessons I learned when I had a chance to go to culinary school from our executive chef at the time, Barbara Alexander, is really simple is best. It doesn't have to be super fancy and complicated, but good product, uh, organic, local, all of those, all of those important attributes, simply prepared. So I, yeah, I and and and, and in, in in season from a good farmer. You know, yeah. the, the frustration I had in New York is that because of uh, 
the uh, ambitious ability of New Yorkers and immigrants to sell anything to anybody, which is just fine. Um, their criteria for being in a farmer's market, a uh, green market, is proximity within mm -hmm. 100 miles. Our farmer's markets only let you in if you're a good farmer. You not only have to be local, you have to be really good at raising that stuff you're selling. And, you know, our farm managers actually know the difference. Our, our locals know the difference. So it's much more complex to get something brilliantly simple. Mm -hmm. Well, when you and I first met, one of the things that we were interested in talking about on this show, and we have you on here, is the history of queer people in food. And you yeah. mentioned James Beard, but I don't know that all of our listeners even know who James Beard is. So can we start with him and then maybe talk about some of the folks uh, who have emerged? I mean, like so many other industries, right? People had to be closeted and yeah, they yeah. still do yeah. today. Uh, but but give us your sense of that history because you witnessed a lot of it. I did. And, and, and in fact, um, I was fortunate to help Dr. Marion Nessel at New York University develop and launch the country's first food studies program. Uh, where you study history, culture, sensory evaluation, chemistry, biology, international relations, all those things through a prism of food. You get a BS, a master's, or a PhD. And ancillary to that, I helped uh, build, and I still support, the Mary Nessel Food Studies Collection at the Bopes Library at NYU, where we have 70,000-plus books and 15,000-plus pamphlets. And in that, I've, I've done this thing called Critical Topics in Food, which is a panel discussion now on Zoom, that people can subscribe to or look at the archives for, where I get people who are smarter than I am, and uh, they talk about something that is important to us all uh, from a very small, uh, strong, and, and clear perspective. And one year we did Food Writers of Greenwich Village. Mm. And it was funny, it was 11 o'clock a.m. on a Friday in the pouring rain in February, and the reading room had 200 people packed in. Because we knew that James Beard, who grew up in... Uh, uh, Oregon and was kicked out of Seaside, uh, not Sea, yeah, uh, uh, Reed College, sorry, near Seaside, Florida, uh, Seaside, uh, uh, Oregon. Um, he was kicked out for fooling around with somebody, I think a professor. And uh, he had to be closeted. He was this big kind of jolly guy. He wrote 23 or 25, depending on how you count, cookbooks. He was the father of American cookery. You read his um, fireside cookbook introduction, and it looks like instead of being written in 1945 or 47, that it could have been written today. Mm -hmm. Buy good ingredients and use them wisely and it'll be the most economical and the best result. I mean, he was so, he was he was raised by a, kind of a single mother who had an inn uh, and a rooming house and who bought the best produce from the best farmers and taught him from the ground up. And they had a Chinese cook and he learned about that. So when he got to New York and he had, um, an hors d'oeuvre and catering company. He was the first person to do a cooking show on television. He just wasn't very comfortable on television. He was better on stage. He had been doing light opera and different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He knew everybody. And he introduced Julia Child to New York. He introduced everybody to everybody. He was uh, an extraordinary uh, teacher. And again, I met him later in his life and got to visit him. And uh, he, he just supported so many people. The James Beard Foundation that gives all those awards is named for him although he never would have liked having that happen because he just wasn't that way. But he was a gay man who uh, was this jolly fellow, you know, who um, uh, was kind of asexual because he was he was big and round and boisterous and jolly and did, didn't fit a stereotype. Mm -hmm. And then there was Craig Claiborne, who was, I used to say he was the original uh, queer eye for the uh, straight guy, uh, Southern gentleman. 
he was the um, first big food editor of the New York Times and restaurant critic. And he also was closeted and introduced many, many people. Richard Olney is a Midwesterner who moved to the south of France and inspired people like Alice Waters to be seasonal and local and regional. And he was uh, seriously gay and, uh, again, couldn't talk about it. And, of course, later on, Jeremiah Tower, who worked at Chez Panisse and then later had stars, was rather flamboyantly gay because that was more 70s, 80s. And uh, But it was still at a time where... Uh, the women who were racing after him thought that, you know, just the right woman would make things different. So in many, many cases, Michael Bauer, who was the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle for 30 years or something, was a gay man who didn't necessarily talk about it. Uh, I mean, hide it, but he didn't talk about it until much, much later. So there were, you know, many, many critical, fundamental, uh, foundational folks in food were women who used their husband's money to travel and write books and buy things and gay men. Hmm. It's so interesting because I, I certainly have studied a lot of the folks that you mentioned, uh, including James Beard. I had no idea until I met you that he was gay. I had no idea about Jeremiah Towers. And, and those, are, those are some big influencers in the food scene. Yeah. yeah, you know, part of it was they didn't have families taking up their time. You know what I mean? They were they're, they're, The world was their family. I, I, I'll never forget Jeremiah... I knew Jeremiah for, you know, I met Jeremiah when I was in my early 20s and I had my first meal at Chez Panisse on an overturned garbage can in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, there was Jeremiah flaring his nostrils at me. And um, many years later, he came into the Oakville grocery and he came up to the cheese case and he looks at me and he looks at the beautiful boy who was waiting on people at that counter who he later lived with. And he said to me, so what position do I have to assume at this counter to be served? And I paused and I looked at him and I said, the usual. And he laughed. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it was, it was, but it was very European. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It was very, mm-hmm. it was very, I mean, when I was running the Oakville Grocery, so our customers were very, what we call social. That means wealthy and established. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I could marry well. And in those days that meant to a woman. And I said, well, uh, I'm gay. And they said, that's okay. As long as you are amusing at dinner and show up on time are discreet and have a clean blue blazer, you can marry anybody in San Francisco. And I said, I would like to move to New York now, please. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and that was in a very transitional time, right? I mean, uh, the American Psychiatrics Association decision to quote unquote normalize being gay, the decriminalization, the whole yeah. sexual revolution of the 70s and into the 80s, and of course, the AIDS crisis. I will tell you that when I first went to a, a, a gay pride uh, a, a gathering event parade in uh, Golden Gate Park and saw that there were 100,000 people that were gay or would admit to be gay or were friends of gays, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was the only one. I grew up in Southern California in the Valley, and I'd never met anybody gay. Right. I identified some people who people called sissies. But mm-hmm. uh, I didn't understand exactly what that meant, even though I was aware of my own um, orientation from the age of seven. Mm-hmm. But I, but, but when I moved to San Francisco, I will, I will say the first thing that happened is I fell in love with a woman that I was with for three and a half, four years who understood that I had that focus or that piece of myself that I needed to address. And we, I didn't, I, I wasn't in love again until I met Scott many, many years later. Uh, I, you know, I'd had other relationships, but, um, I really had to stop being with her simply because I didn't think it was ethical at the time to be with a woman 
um, when I was going to be pursuing these other. Now it's it's you know poly is acceptable and there's a place for it and as I say it's something that's been common in Europe uh, in certain European cultures forever. Mm-hmm. But in those days it was un- it, I felt it was unethical and a betrayal to her. We remained friends until she died a few years ago. Um, but it was a very and, and when we moved to New York, when I moved to New York, uh, I was fortunate because I had kind of just finished up my young and crazy phase. And within a month of moving to New York, I met a guy, of course, from California, um, 6'3", long legs, bright blue eyes. And uh, we got together. Again, maybe we wouldn't have been together for six years, but it was a very terrifying time. And it was a very, very scary time Mm -hmm. to be a gay person in America. You know, when the pandemic hit, I thought to myself, well, at least this time it's everybody. Right. Not just those of us who some people want to, to have die painfully. Yeah, and that's a whole nother show, isn't it? Well, let's shift a bit. Uh, we've got yeah. so much to talk about here. Uh, you hosted this really amazing food and wine honoring event. I'll call it that, uh, that KRCB produced this last year. You mentioned Alice Waters. She was one of the honorees. But but before we talk about her, tell us about this event, where it came from and what it proposed to do. Sure. Um, so the group at KRCB... Um, well, actually, at Northern California Public Media, had talked about doing a women in wine event. And uh, they'd actually asked me if I would kind of be on the stage and interview some of the winemakers. And I said, you know, uh, thank you very much. It's very nice of you to ask, but I don't do wine at all. I do food. Food mm-hmm. is is so important and so fundamental. And there's so much about wine. And frankly, for me, at this point in history, doing women in wine is kind of feels a little bit insulting to women. Mm-hmm. I'm not just you know, uh, leaders in wine who happen to be women um, or whatever. And so that went away and they came back and they said, well, we've decided to do wine and food. And I said, well, if I'm involved, I would want it to be food and wine because we all need food and some people can enjoy wine. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, that sounds right. So we, a a bunch of us actually, Daisy Dembski was the other advisor and the team at um, NorCal got together and we came up with... um, Actually, a lot of the people who were honored, besides the winemakers, uh, were people who have been on my show, Savoring Sonoma. It was, you know, it's a natural, right? Mm-hmm. These are people that everybody knew uh, had been contributing something important. And we tried to have categories, and we talked about all of that. And then uh, we wanted to, what we wanted to do is begin to acknowledge the people who are here in Sonoma County, and really in the entire Bay Area, the North Bay, because uh, NorCal Public Media does cover all of that, and sure we does. hope to uh, expand all, yeah, and expand and include. But we, you know, you have to kind of start closer to home, and it's it, it's tough to ask a farmer to stay up past six o'clock. You know, <laughs> okay. I, I learned during the cheese book that um, if you spend an hour with a farmer or a cheesemaker, you're stealing sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only twenty four, you know, in the day. Yeah, so, good point. Right. So we got these people. I mean, we were able to uh, get Marty Griffin, who founded the Audubon Canyon Ranch and has been a a great environmentalist because that's been one of the missions of uh, NorCal. And he's 102. And then then we said, well, who should be the grand honoree? And I said, well, what about, you know, Alice? She's the person who introduced me to Sonoma County produce and goat cheese and all these things. And uh, they said, well, could we get her? Would she do it? And I said, well, I can ask. I've known her for 50 years. You know, it can't hurt to ask. And I swear to you, Greg, she she emailed back, her assistant emailed back 
Alice would be honored to be honored in an hour. Hmm. And, you know, we were, I was nervous about it because it was an imposition. She does many, many things and she raises big money for, and does a lot of hard work, but she's also down to the grassroots too. She'll sit at a folding table at a farmer's market and talk to people. She'll, you know what I mean? She'll do all those things. And um, she came away feeling appreciated and understood and, uh, and at one with those people. And what I love is she got to meet some farmers she had not met before that we all hold dear. Hmm. So, you know, on every level, it was, it was a first time, little loving hands, few bumps and, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't smooth. It wasn't the James Beard Award. And that's good. It should be more like a kind of a, 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 a family picnic, you know what I mean, than, than an award celebration. Because we're talking about farmers. We're talking about uh, local activists. We're talking about people who are working in the earth and in the trenches to take care of us and to give us goodness. Well, it was more than a picnic. That The lobby of the Luther Burbank Center where this event was held was packed. Yeah. Uh, it was really amazing. There were there were a lot of different uh, winemakers and food purveyors there that, that were interacting with people. I mean, it was really fantastic. And I remember very distinctly going to uh, Chez Panisse early on. And this is way before, you know, all the hype about big fancy restaurants, fine food dining in this region. Yep. It's a very humble place in Berkeley, but I read a lot about it and about this amazing sort of new age chef who was using fresh locally produced ingredients named Alice Waters. And the food was incredible. I remember it very distinctly. But she really did carve out a new approach, didn't she? You know, Alice did a, a very complex, purposeful restaurant. Mm -hmm. It was originally designed to be a place where she and her friends could get together and have a meal and talk politics. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when she spoke to us, and, and by the way, if you want to hear her talk, we took the entire 21-minute talk that she gave at those awards, and it was the first segment of my show, Savoring Sonoma, here on Kara CB, and you can listen to it. It's in the archive. Excellent. Uh, including the introduction from Sue Conley and Peggy Smith, um, who uh, were the original cowgirls, and Peggy, who cooked at Chez Panisse. But, um, you know, Alice had, she was a Montessori teacher, and she cared about all of the pieces of it. People used to rail about how, you know, at the end of the meal, she'd put out this beautiful copper stand with three plums on it, or three figs on it. It's like, what the heck is that? But what it took to find the right tree, the right variety, harvest at the right time and bring it to perfect, perfect ripeness in the back of the restaurant or outside in the back on racks to put to your table so that that was the best plum you ever had was a lot harder than making holidays mm -hmm. and a lot more important as far as I'm concerned. So mm -hmm. it was all of those things. And she began to, and by the way, Alice's idea of a local farm includes north of San Diego. You know, she's she's never been uh, a fetishist. It's not like, oh, it's got to be within 100 steps of the of the restaurant or it doesn't count. That's phony. It's got to be nearby. It's got to be able to get there, you know, in one day. It's got to be cared for. And, it, you know, um, it, it, it was more to it than that. She also has always had chefs that worked six months on, six months off so that they can have a life. Uh, the workers who worked for her for many, many years, who got benefits, who uh, were encouraged to have education. I mean, you know, it was it, it, it was and is 
more, as she would say, more than the sum of its parts. And the aesthetics of it, the light, the flowers, the uh, every plate, every day. And, and it's not about being rarefied. It's about being wonderful and on purpose. It's about being beautiful and delicious. It's not about being interested. But the other thing is, and Alice was telling us about this, it's about helping the farmers. You know, she had a farmer who said, I have all these stinging nettles. What can we do with them? And she said, I don't know. And she created with her team one of the most amazing and famous pizzas, a stinging nettle pizza that has been on the, the cafe menu for years. So it really is a conversation with the earth through all the people who take care. She's she's a wonder. She's adamant. She's tireless. And uh, she's a treasure. Yeah, boy, you're not kidding. And and again, one of those things that pro people probably don't know about her is that she really took on a large role in feeding people with AIDS in the early 80s. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, so I was living in New York and my friend um, Vince Calcagno, who was one of the partners at Zuni Cafe in San Francisco, lost four friends in a week. Hmm. And he got in bed and under the covers and said, I'm not coming out until I figure something out. He came out and he said, okay, we're going to do a dinner. We're going to bring attention. This is in 1986. Mm -hmm. It was 85 when we started. And he said, we have to do a dinner that brings attention to this, that raises money with all the leading chefs in the Bay Area. And because I was not here and on, and on nobody's staff and quite frankly, not sleeping with any of them at the time, uh, I would come every six or seven weeks and kind of be the ombudsman, uh, ombudsman, right? The Dutch uncle who would kind of walk them through the process. And we ended up doing a 1,000 person sit down dinner with a nine course meal from 14 restaurants in a covered pier building next to Greens. And I didn't know about these things. So I gathered everybody together. And I, you know, again, I was just a young guy. And I said, so what can you guys do? And I think it was Alice who said, well, we can do about 250 people. And I said, okay, <laughs> we're gonna do four kitchens and four dinners for 250 people, one in each corner. And we're gonna use walkie talkies because this is before cell phones. <laughs> And in many cases, Alice was the one, you know, when Alice Waters said, we got to do this, people would say yes. And she got she got American Express that had forbidden their restaurants to mention AIDS because it's in restaurants and it might hurt business. She said, uh, here's the deal. If you don't not only help us, if you don't give us money, I think it was $20,000, we'll never use Amex in any of our restaurants again as long as we live. Hmm. So they came through and she got... David Smuin to bring the San Francisco Ballet. She arranged, I think, through someone to get uh, Linda Ronstadt to sing Desperado, which broke our hearts. And and it was one of the great it was one of the great meals of all time. It was you know it was um, it was about changing people's heads. It was broadcast an hour of it was broadcast live on 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 um, uh, on NPR on PBS. You know really? the San Francisco station. Yeah, it was broadcast live, and then. They did it again the next year, and then I helped to do another one with Julia Child at the Boston Garden in Boston a couple of years later. I mean, and this, you know, a, a big reason why it was able to happen at all was that Alice Waters said, we have to do this. It must be done. She produced an artist's portfolio of individual hand lithographed, hand letterpress recipes from all these different restaurants. I mean, it was, it raised money, but it also changed heads. The Maricos Foundation, the Grateful Dead Foundation gave $20,000. So, you know what I mean? It was, the idea was Alice was not going to go and she's this way today. She's not going to go to all this trouble unless it does many, 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 many things with one great complex effort. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what she taught us all. It was, and she never wavered. She never wavered. Yeah, boy. Yeah, she is really a person of strength. And, you know, if you listen to her interview, the speech that she gave in, uh, on your show, that segment that you have posted, she has a very quiet but very steady voice, very yeah. powerful words. And uh, I just really admire her. She's great. Let's talk about the food scene here in Sonoma County. It's, it's, I will describe it as exploding lot, in lots of different directions. Uh, but who are some of the queer people we should be watching here? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm uh, not super aware of people's private lives when I eat. I am aware of their reputation for kindness, mm-hmm. uh, let me tell you. But, um, I mean, I do know that Chris Delucchi out here at, at, in Guerneville is an advocate on every level and for Sonoma County tourism and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, I think that there are queer food scenes that are growing. I mean, the brew folks. And, again, it's not even gay. Mm-hmm. It's queer. And um, I'm part of a group that decided to open it. it. It had been a men's group, a gay men's group. And we decided that the criteria needed to be anybody who's ever felt queer, which means everybody now living and dead. So I think what's wonderful about it is that the assumption is that we should never make an assumption and that uh, that we support each other for many, many reasons in many, many different ways. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, you know, it absolutely does. Uh, I guess the other topic that I hear a lot about is sustainable foods. And I've heard it defined and debated uh, a number of different ways. What's your take on sustainable food? Well, again, uh, a little bit like the gay to queer or non-binary or just everybody. It's no longer feasible to focus on sustainability. We've already messed everything up. We have to be regenerative. We can't just sustain where we are in food. We have to clear the earth and clean the dirt. It's, you know, but Jack London did it many, many years ago at, you know, what is now Jack London State Park. He had all this really burned out farmland that had been ruined. And he took ancient Chinese methodology to regenerate the earth and plant, and it's productive to this day. So the most exciting things going on in food and farming are not just sustainable, but regenerative. And uh, it's very, very necessary. And Sonoma County is definitely a leader. And regenerative also means that our forest has to be taken care of, that our grasslands have to be taken care of, that our coast has to be taken Mm -hmm. care of in the waters as we can. You know, this is holistic, you know? I mean, uh, what can I say? Um, COVID taught us that if that lady in the front sneezes, you might get something when you're sitting at the back of the airplane. We're all in this together. And so it, it is all connected. And so the explosion, and, and I, I, I want to make one more comment about the explosion of uh, the food scene here. And that is that two things. One is that some of the more ancient foodways like pizza, we, we're having a pizza moment where really great flour from around here and really great ingredients are being put together, partly because it can end up being more affordable and also really use every kind of local and seasonal food, right? Right outside of the, right from the backyard or from the front yard or from the side yard. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 we're also now at the point where being that focused on every single ingredient is quite expensive. So we're, we're getting more examples of thoughtfully Sonoma County um, interpretations of great Thai food, uh, Kom Loy in Sebastopol, 
uh, uh, ramen gajan for a certain kind of Asian food. I mean, we're getting and uh, hand line is, you know, coastal California. These are places that do something that's both of a certain style that people might recognize from the general culture and a very specific and personal local take on it mm -hmm. because of where we are and what we have to work with. So I think more and more people are realizing, you know, how great that is. And barbecue used to be something that felt like it didn't exactly belong here until the barbecue history of cookery uh, on, on an open flame, you know, uh, became re-embraced and, 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 and you can bury a pig in the ground and that's not new in Sonoma County, let me tell you. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a greater awareness. And I also think, quite frankly, younger people, the new generations know so much more about food. They read about it, they TikTok about it, they, they chat about it, they share about it, and they're interested and they don't really care if there's a tablecloth on the table. Yeah, no, that good point. Very good point. And there's a lot of folks that are migrating up here from the Bay Area and other parts, uh, perhaps as you did years ago, but but people are moving out. They don't have to attend an office five days a week and folks right. are coming up into Sonoma County here. So for all of the new listeners yeah. who maybe haven't ventured out yet, uh, yeah. where are the must-see ex must experiences, the, the must-tastes in your mind? Well, I would say this. First of all, I want to mention not just people coming from Sacramento and from San Francisco, but they're coming from the Midwest where they have a fantasy or a memory of loving farming and there isn't any like mm -hmm. that anymore it's mm -hmm. all so we a lot of our new farmers are from the middle west and they're the next generation and they're they're, they're blown away by what grows here luther burbank was right so i would say if you're just getting here go to the farmers markets go to all of them go to many of them go to eat at the foods at the pop-ups at the, the farmers market that that pop-up might end up being one of our hottest restaurants go to el molino central in boys hot springs some of the best mexican food in america in america i don't say that lightly uh, as I said, Handline, Kumloy, uh, uh, Ramen Gajan, go to Hillsburg and go to Troubadour, which is a sandwich shop. Mm -hmm. It's a French kind of style in Hillsburg um, that, that is extraordinary. If you want really high end, uh, all veg and vegan, uh, Little Saint is doing some extraordinary stuff. We have two of the best high end restaurants in America. We have Single Thread, which is extraordinary Agreed. and has won three Michelin stars and a green star for Michelin for being environmentally thoughtful. And they have their own 24 acre farm. And Cyrus, where uh, Doug Keen is, is doing a brilliant job, but just four days a week. So his entire staff can have a life. So at every level, starting at the farmer's market, maybe get a CSA if you're going to be here for the summer. Uh, we have so much for you to taste and try. And of course, you know, life without a taco truck is just not worth living. The one at the in the in the parking lot at Safeway in Guerneville was written about in the late Gourmet magazine. The it's the best Al Pastor burrito I've ever had. We have great food. Well, you're not kidding, uh, and I'll attest to uh, single thread being fabulous. The experience, the food, everything about it is pretty spectacular. Uh, Cyrus is also one of my favorites. I'm looking forward to going there uh, soon. And uh, it, it's an experience. I mean, that's really it. it the, whole, the whole meal is an experience uh, and well, one and, worth going to. Yeah, and so is Diavola in Garbage, uh, uh, Geyserville because their, their pizzas and the cured meats that they put on them are amazing. The uh, SoCal, what is it called? Sonoma County Pizza Company in Forestville. Wow, are they making great pizzas. Mm -hmm. uh, Frankenny's in Santa Rosa uh, it, it does kind of a German beer garden but also has – 
kind of amazing pizzas with wild mushrooms you never saw before. I mean, we have some extraordinary food in every in every area of the county. You are not kidding. So tell us about your show, because that's a great place to learn about everything you've been talking about here in the last 45 minutes. Savoring Sonoma, where can people go to find it and when can they listen? Well, about uh, a year and a half ago, uh, the news producer, Mark Prell uh, at KRCB, came to me and said, would you be willing to do kind of some one-minute food spots? And I said, sure. And we decided to call them Savoring Sonoma. So I'll talk about leftovers or persimmons or strawberries, you know what I mean, or garlic or whatever. And we started doing that. And then uh, Darren Lachey, who's the, Lachelle, excuse me, who's the president and CEO, said, would you do an hour show? And we agreed it was going to be just twice a month, and it's called Savoring Sonoma, The Hour. And all of those archives can be found if you, you know, go on to KRCB or Northern California Public Media and press in the search for uh, Savoring Sonoma, The Hour. And actually, the shorts are on there, too. What I've been trying to do since we started is have conversations that are foundational. Dusky Estes, who runs Farm to Pantry. Uh, I, I, the cowgirls I mentioned, Sue and Peggy, um, uh, Kyle Katina, uh, Kyle uh, Connaughton from Single Thread, Doug Keen, uh, the Bernier family in, from the Alexander Valley, who amazing farmers. So those kinds of people who have contributed and continue to give us the foundation of great food and great living in this county that relates to food and relates to cookery. And that's what it's all about. Um, they're, they're pretty personal conversations. Um, but uh, we find out where Linda Hopkins, who's our supervisor, you know, grew up in Southern California, caring about the ocean and ended up becoming an organic farmer. Those are the kinds of things that we want to share with people and uh, and have a, a good conversation and a smile, too. That's great. Well, we'll put a link on our website to uh, the show where you can go and check it out. Just go to OutbeatNews.com, click show notes at the top of the page, and you will find a link to Savoring Sonoma, the hour. Uh, Clark, where can people go to follow you? Well, I mean, you know, I, I do some Insta uh, at Clark Wolf, whatever the heck it is, I think. And I am on Facebook, but I, I, I think I'm kind of full uh, there. Uh, you know, I am on the radio and I'm happy to be there and say hello when you run into me uh, at a farmer's market. It turns out I had no idea that... Um, I guess people can tell from my voice sometimes. I don't know. I, I just sound like me in my head. But people will pull on my shirt <laughs> at the farmer's market and say, are you Clark? And I'll, you know, we'll have a nice conversation. So I don't do a lot of social media. I used to write for Forbes. Uh, I don't really do that anymore um, for a lot of reasons, including I'm more interested in things that uh, are less business and more life. So come listen to the show. Fantastic. Well, we've been talking with Clark Wolf. He is the host of Savoring Sonoma and uh, was the MC at KRCB's wonderful event. He is the foodie of foodies. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us and sharing your story tonight. Thank you, Greg. I'm so glad you do this show. And that wraps up our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra with Gary Carnavelli. That's going to be at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutbeatNews.com. 
change the world But I don't know what to do So I give it up to Broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move mountains Silence is a quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we would take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roner Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next. <laughs> 